there are some strange Christmas cards out there. Uh, there's a Christmas car- card entitled Merry Krishnas. And it's for those who are part of the cult called Hare Krishna. There's a Christmas card out there entitled I'm Dreaming of a White Trash Christmas. If you happen to sport a unibra, there's even a Christmas card for you from the unibras. And when you look at that Christmas card, there's a father, and there's a mother, and there's a son sporting a unibra. Strange, strange, strange Christmas cards. Our text provides an unusual Christmas card, but not a strange one like the ones that I mentioned. It's unusual, this text, as a Christmas card, because first of all, it never mentions the name of Jesus, the one who is the reason for the season. When you look at 1 Timothy 3.16, all we have a reference to is he, that he is obviously Jesus, but no mention of Jesus, no mention of Christ, no mention of Lord. It's an unusual Christmas card because most people don't consider it a Christmas card. Most people do not agree with me that this is a Christmas card. They might see it as a hymn or a, a, a fragment of a creed or a confession, but they don't recognize it as I do as a Christmas card. It's unusual because of its literary structure. When you look at this card, it starts off with normal words, but then the writer Paul breaks out into a rap, so to speak. A rap consisting of six lines. It begins with he who was revealed in the flesh and ends with he who was taken up into glory. Unusual, this structure of these words that Paul has written. And it's unusual because we really don't expect these words to occur. Uh, When Paul writes to his spiritual son Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about worship, Men and women in public worship. In chapter 3, he talks about the qualifications of elders and deacons and deaconesses. And then when he gets to chapter 3, verse 14, he talks about the church. And he explains the nature of the church. And he wants Timothy to know how people ought to live and conduct themselves in the church. And he says that the church is a pillar and support of the truth. And then on the heels of that, we have this Christmas card. And it's really unexpected that Paul would break out into this rap, so to speak, to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to look and examine this unusual Christmas card. I believe that if we will do that, then we won't allow Christ to be squeezed out of the Christmas season. It will cause us to love Christ. 
It will cause us to treasure Christ. It will cause us to adore Christ in light of what Paul says in these words. So look with me at these words that I'm framing as an unusual Christmas card. And I want us to notice and take note of the cover of the unusual Christmas card. When you think about Christmas cards that you get, a lot of times people put themselves on the Christmas card, but the nature of a Christmas card is to cause you to, to and invite you to read the information on the inside of the card. It's trying to attract your attention. It's trying to invite you and grab your attention so that you'll look further into the Christmas card. When you look at the cover of this Christmas card, the the words that you find on it are the ones at the beginning of verse 16, when Paul says to Timothy, and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. That's on the cover of the Christmas card. Great is the mystery of godliness. What Paul is highlighting is the mystery of godliness. And in the New Testament, the word mystery refers to something that was hidden, but now has been revealed. It was something that was a divine secret, but now it has become what God has made known. And Paul wants us to understand that he is talking about a mystery, and this mystery relates to godliness. Very important word in 1 Timothy is the word godliness. Used eight different times. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, tells Timothy, Timothy, discipline yourself. Go into the spiritual gym and exercise yourself. For what goal? For what purpose? For the purpose of being godliness. Godly. Godliness doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come because you come to church. You have to go into the spiritual gym. You have to exercise. You have to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, Paul will command Timothy to pursue different things. And one of the things he is to pursue is godliness. He is to chase down godliness in his life. That's how important godliness is. Chapter 6, verse 3, Paul talks about doctrine that is according to godliness. That is, beliefs that fit godliness. And what this stresses to us is that belief and behavior go together. It is not enough to have sound doctrine. We must, as Christians, have sound living. And we must keep in mind that if there's going to be sound living, you must know sound doctrine. Some people try to bypass 
truth that is in God's word and seek to just do different things. And they think that will make them godly. But what leads to godliness, the foundation of godliness, is doctrine. And Paul says, Timothy, there is a doctrine that is according to godliness. And what he's saying to us is that when we live and believe, it ought to show up in how we walk. It's not enough to just know truth. That truth has to transform our lives. It has to make a difference. And that truth works in the hard times, in the difficult times, and in the good times. But when Paul talks about godliness, he lets us know that it's not just enough to have a creed, a doctrine, a faith. But that creed, that faith, that doctrine goes hand in hand with behavior. And so when he talks about the mystery of godliness, he's talking about the Christian faith that is to result in you and I as the children of God living, living a Christian life. And Paul says in this cover of this Christmas card, great, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, before Paul wrote these words, he, he visited Ephesus. He preached the gospel in Ephesus. And it caused an uproar. It caused a riot. And people were hollering and shouting out. The, those who lived, lived in Ephesus, they were shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, Paul says, no, no, no. We Christians understand that great is the mystery of godliness. Great is that truth that was hidden and is now revealed that emphasizes that we are to live godly lives. Paul says it's great. It's mega truth. This truth of the mystery of godliness is put in a class where it is superior and far more important and more significant than other things. Paul says, let me tell you, just on the cover of this Christmas card, that godliness, as it relates to this mystery, the gospel, is something that is great and important and is superior and is to be elevated above all other ideas. Great is a mystery of godliness. Now, this is not just Paul's opinion. This is not just Paul saying, this is what I believe. The, the words that he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He's saying, this is what we believe. This is what is undeniable. This is what is beyond all question. This is uh, something that there's no doubt about it. We believe that great is the mystery of godliness. Paul was of that conviction that he was not alone, that these were not just his personal conviction, but this was a conviction of Paul and others. So that together, 
they could say assuredly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this mystery that was once hidden and now revealed that emphasizes godliness is great. It's mega truth. Now, I don't know if we can say that. But I hope that when we examine the contents of this Christmas card, when we examine what makes up this mystery of godliness, that we will join the chorus, that we will join the choir of Paul and others, and that we will proclaim, great is the mystery of godliness. So join me as we look at the contents of the unusual Christmas card in the last part of verse 16. And the contents are divided into six lines. I mentioned that. Six lines make up Paul's rap about the mystery of godliness. Don't get hung up on how the six lines relate to each other. Focus in on what the six lines are saying. I do believe lines one through three are unit, and lines four through six are unit. But notice the first line of the Christmas card. It's he who was revealed in the flesh. In time and history, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was revealed. Was revealed. It's like, Here is an individual that is made known by God. Sometimes when you go to an art gallery, they will have a painting or picture, and it will be behind a curtain. And the picture is covered. You can't see it. And then all of a sudden, the curtain is pulled back so that you can see the glorious painting the significant of painting. And that's the way it was with Jesus Christ, the one who was always God, the one who was in a face-to-face relationship with God in the beginning, the one who was God. All of a sudden, we couldn't see him, others couldn't see him, but all of a sudden the curtain was pulled back and he was revealed. And as John said, he was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is all about. The incarnation and the fact that Jesus walked here on earth and lived on earth. Paul is beginning the Christmas card by saying and speaking of the incarnation of Christ. That Christ was revealed, that Christ was uncovered, that Christ was unveiled. That Christ was manifested so that all could see him. God took the initiative to do this. He made it possible for Christ to be seen. And so our Lord Jesus Christ left heaven's glory. He was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was born on Christmas Day. 
He lived a perfect life. They killed him on the cross for your sins and for my sins. They buried him. That was his life on earth. When Paul says that Jesus was revealed, he's saying that God became man. That God became incarnate. That God took upon human flesh so that he was 100% God and 100% man as Jesus lived here on earth. God, in the person of Jesus, was wrapped in human flesh so that the baby in the manger was the eternal son of God. He was revealed. And because of that, because of his incarnation, great is the mystery of godliness. The second line of the Christmas card is was vindicated in the spirit. And on each one of these lines, we have to stop, we have to pause, we have to meditate, we have to think upon what's being said. Jesus was vindicated. And again, it's not something he did, but it's something God did on his behalf. God vindicated Jesus. God proved and said that Jesus was right when it came to who Jesus said he was and who Jesus and the things that Jesus did. Jesus was right when he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is right when he says, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Jesus was right. He was right when he says in Mark's gospel that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was right. Jesus was right when he says that he's the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Men were wrong when they crucified the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Men were wrong when they hollered out and said, crucify him, crucify him. Men were wrong when they killed him. Men were not vindicated when they were wrong when they placed Jesus in the tomb. And they thought somehow by them standing by the tomb and guarding the tomb, that they could prevent God from vindicating his son. But God vindicated his son. How? By raising him from the dead. That was the vindication. That was the proof that Jesus was right concerning who he is and concerning what he has come to do. He's right. He's right. He's right. And Paul says that Jesus was vindicated. What a glorious, marvelous truth. That there is evidence, that there is proof, 
that in the court of justice, so to speak, Jesus was vindicated. Men lied about him. Men did not understand his words. Men did not understand his person and work. But Jesus spoke plainly about who he was and what he came to do. And the reason we can trust everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did is because God vindicated his son. God vindicated his son. Paul says that Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. If you look at your Bible, some of your Bibles have spirit with a capital S, meaning Holy Spirit. Some have it with a lowercase s, meaning human spirit. I don't know whether it's the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. All I know, Jesus was vindicated. That much I can be dogmatic about. Whether that took place in his spiritual realm or whether that took place by the Holy Spirit, there's evidence from Scripture that it's both. We do know that the Spirit of God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and that is evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul is zeroing in, not on the incarnation, but on the resurrection. Great is the mystery of God because of the resurrection of Jesus. The third line of the Christmas card is, he was beheld by angels. There is no question that angels beheld that Christ was revealed by his incarnation and even by his resurrection. You can find that in scripture. Angels saw the life of Christ on earth and even was involved at certain times in his life. Angels were witnesses to the resurrection. But, 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 but Paul is not talking about the resurrection here. Uh, this term beheld when Jesus is a subject means appeared. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection appearances of Christ, Paul says that Jesus appeared to Peter, that Jesus appeared to the twelve. That Jesus appeared to over 500 men at one time. That Jesus appeared to others. And lastly, he appeared to the apostle Paul. So this idea of beheld means that Jesus appeared. Here, Paul is saying that Jesus appeared to angels. When did that happen? I want to suggest to you that he's not talking about the incarnation. He's not talking about the resurrection. He is talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ, after he arose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven. And when he ascended back to heaven, this is what 1 Peter 3.22 says. You don't have to turn there, but listen to these words carefully. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. 
Peter says after Jesus died, after Jesus arose from the dead, Peter goes on to say, Jesus is at the right hand of God. You want to know where he is? Oh, yes, he's in my heart, but he's at the right hand of God. And Peter says, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Did did you hear those words? Angels, powers, and authorities have been subjected to Jesus Christ. When did that happen? That happened when Jesus ascended back to heaven and took his right, took the seat at the right hand of God. And the Father put angels and powers and authorities in subjection to him. And I want to suggest that that subjection involved Jesus appearing to angels, not just good angels but evil angels that we call demons. And so what Paul is proclaiming here is not the incarnation, not the resurrection, but the ascension of Jesus Christ. The first three lines come to an end, to a climax. And in my mind, this is enough of a Christmas card. I could take this Christmas card and be happy and content and give it out to others. I mean to have a Christmas card that proclaims the incarnation and life of Christ. To have a Christmas card that speaks of his resurrection. Meaning that he was killed on the cross. He was buried and he arose from the dead. To have a Christmas card that said that not only did he rise from the dead. But he ascended back to heaven. And when he ascended back to heaven, he appeared to angels, good and bad, and proclaimed his victorious conquest over the cross. Amen. We can stop, but God doesn't stop, so I won't stop. So I want us to look at the next unit quickly, lines four through six. Line four of the Christmas card is is Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. What good is it to have the truth and the knowledge that Jesus is the God-man who walked on this earth, that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins and my sin, took your place and my place. What good is it to know that he was buried and raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God? What good is that if we don't tell anybody? If we don't proclaim Christ? So Paul says here in this Christmas card, He was proclaimed. He was preached. And he's not talking about preach simply from the pulpit. He means preach from the pews. He's not only preached by the preacher, but preached by the people. Christ was preached. And Paul is looking at that time in the early history of the church. Christ is now ascended back to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. So what happens? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit 
comes. And the church is born. And the church is on fire. They're on fire. They're preaching Christ. They're turning the world upside down. And Paul says, when you look at this Christmas card, Christ was, that's what's proclaimed. That's the only proper response if you say you believe to the, in the incarnation, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Closely related to the fourth line is the fifth line, which reads, believed on in the world. Not just a bunch of people picking up their microphones and proclaiming Christ, but Paul says that what they proclaim, God used to save people. People believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was proclaimed to the nations, not just Gentiles, but to Gentiles and Jews. The Great Commission is make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, all ethnic groups. Don't leave anyone out. Don't leave anyone behind. Christ was preached to the nations. But the good news, and Paul could testify of it, is that Christ was believed. That the message was believed. That God used the message to save people. My friends, the mission of the church didn't end when Paul wrote these words. He's just speaking of it historically. But Paul kept on preaching Christ when he was writing this letter. And as he continues to live on earth, we are to continue preaching Christ. Proclaiming Christ. His incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. That people might believe in the world. This world of people is filled with men and women and boys and girls who are without the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they're not going to get saved by osmosis. They're not going to get saved without hearing the gospel. The mystery of godliness has to be preached. Christ has to be preached so that people can believe. Paul ends with this last line where he says, at the end of verse 16, taken up in glory. This one who was revealed in the flesh, when it's all said and done, he was taken up in glory. Now that phrase, taken up, is used in Acts chapter 1 three different times to speak of the ascension of Jesus Christ. He was taken up. He was taken up. He was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. But I don't believe that Paul is talking about the ascension of Jesus. If so, the chronology of lines 4, 5, and 6 are out of order. 
Remember line four, Christ was preached. Line five, Christ was believed on. Line six, if it's the ascension of Christ, it should have been mentioned first. Because the ascension of Christ happened prior to the preaching of Christ by the early church and prior to individuals believing. I believe that Paul is alluding to the ascension of Christ, but going even beyond that. He's not talking about an event. He's talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was taken up in glory. He now resides in glory in heaven. He's now seated next to the glorious God who is seated on his glorious throne. Paul wants us to realize that right now, when you think about Jesus, don't think about him simply in terms of having ascended to heaven, but think about him as being exalted in heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of God, that he's seated in glory, his residence with the Father, is glorious and magnificent and wonderful. And that's how the Christmas card ends. With the exaltation of Christ. Going even beyond the ascension of Christ. Even though our text is an unusual Christmas card. It's a magnificent one. It's a wonderful Christmas card. The cover focuses on the mystery of godliness. That secret that was hidden, but now has been revealed, and it relates to godliness. The gospel and godliness go hand in hand. And that's what Paul is proclaiming here. It's great. Godliness in the gospel. That's great. And then he tells us what that mystery is. He said that mystery is that he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Beheld by angels, preached among the nation, believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So that when it's all said and done, the one who left heaven's glory to come to earth to provide salvation for you and for me, went to the cross, was killed, was buried, was raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven, and he's now seated at God's right hand in glory, in majesty, uh, in a, a sphere that we can't even really comprehend. There he is seated by the glorious God who's sitting on his glorious throne. 
So, having considered this unusual Christmas card, I hope you can say, beyond all question, undeniable, no doubt about it, great is the mystery of godliness. I hope you can join the chorus that says, great is Jesus. Great is the God-man. Great is the one who left heaven's glory and has returned to heaven's glory, having provided salvation for men and women and boys and girls. This is an unusual Christmas card. But I want to suggest to you that if you will ponder it, if you will read it, if you will think on it, it will cause you to treasure Christ and to love Christ. It will cause you to adore the one who was born on Christmas morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one who's the reason for the season. Thank you for the one that we learned last week is our great and sympathetic high priest. But thank you for allowing us to see that Christ is the mystery of godliness embodied. Thank you that he was revealed, vindicated, seen, preached, believed on, and exalted. May we treasure this Christ. May we love this Christ. May this Christ be at the center of our lives. May we truly remember that he indeed is the reason for this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.